right, it's time for us to go ahead and get started tonight. If y'all will be coming on in and let's be having a seat. If you are uh, here tonight and you did not have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, if you'll make your way back to the little chapel in the uh, back foyer, uh, somebody will take care of you and you'll be served at this time. All right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Thank you. 
Before we go to class, uh, we want to welcome each of you to our services tonight. We want to thank you for being here, especially uh, if you're visiting. I know over the course of this week, there'll be several people uh, visiting uh, our community. You'll be visiting with family and others, and uh, I hope that uh, things go well for whatever plans you may have for the Thanksgiving holidays, and I do hope we'll take some time and just think about how richly God has blessed us and and take some time to be appreciative of those things that God does for us physically as well as spiritually. Uh, tonight, before we begin, I just want to mention a couple of things in addition to those that are sick. Uh, Brother Ben Roberts is home with COVID. I don't know if we announced that this morning. But Brother Wick Warner's son, Jamie Warner, is in the hospital in Biloxi. And uh, he requests our prayers at this time. So please remember Jamie in your prayers that uh, whatever they're doing for him will be done and he'll be released from the hospital very, very soon. Also, remember our midweek Bible study is being changed from Wednesday to Tuesday. And we have a lot of different men that are going to participate in this service. I hope you'll make your plans to be here for that at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, uh, Tuesday night, sorry. And uh, we will have a pie supper uh, to follow on Tuesday night, and so we're thankful for the fellowship uh, and the worship that we'll be able to participate in. Also, those who uh, adopt a soldier are reminded that your box needs to be picked up in the church office. They're due back by November 26th. I want to remind the ladies of your ornament exchange on Sunday, December the 3rd at the Elliott Home. And uh, if you would like to honor a loved one during the holiday season with a contribution to one of our ministries, uh, forms are going to be available in the foyer and return those by December the 3rd. That's all the announcements that I have tonight. Uh, will you bow with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful and thankful that you are our Father and that you love us, that you care for us, Father. We recognize our total and complete dependence on you 
for all things. And Father, during this time of the year, and hopefully always, Father, may we always be mindful of your generosity toward us and the goodness that you manifest toward us every single day of our lives. Father, there are many that we know right now that are in poor health, those that are sick, those that need our encouragement and our prayers, and we pray for the doctors and nurses that will be attending to uh, the needs of those that are sick. We pray that they can be restored to their health if possible. And Father, we also want to uh, pray for those that continue to grieve over the loss of loved ones, especially this time of the year. Please watch over them, Father, and may your hand of healing and hope be upon them. Father, we're so thankful for the wonderful church here that meets at Boonville. We're thankful for our elders, our deacons, so many here that are involved in various aspects of work here in the Lord's church. And may we, Lord, continue to be a shining light in this community as we endeavor to glorify and honor you in all things. And most of all, Father, we are especially mindful and thankful of your son who gave his life on the cross for our sins. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Gunner's going to lead our song tonight before we go to class. Uh, this is for the teachers that go to class, so I'm going to ask him to come on. Today I'll be singing Blue Skies and Rainbows. Blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from
Well, here Ken had asked me last Sunday if I would fill in for him in his absence uh, this Sunday, and so I'm always happy to step in when and where I am needed, and hopefully he won't, uh, or that he won't be too upset with me. I, I took his uh, lapel mic, so I'll try to return it in the same condition that I found it in. Uh, so Ken, if you're watching, please forgive me. But it is good to it is good to be here, and I'm thankful to see each and every one of you out here this evening. Go ahead and don't be too uh, terribly concerned with where I'm about to tell you to turn. But go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Now, I know it's ironic, uh, Ken is going through the major prophets of the Old Testament this quarter, and he told me uh, last Sunday that it would be my choice, and so I thought I'd make it easy on myself and take us to Revelation, so here we are. Uh, but now we'll, uh, we're not going to get uh, too deep uh, into it. Uh, there are some things I want to, that I want to cover, and I'm certainly not going to make any effort to try to answer all the questions about it. We're not going to try to figure out what everything symbolizes or anything like that, but there are some things in here that are very relevant uh, still for us even to this day. And so what I want us to look at in our study here this evening is some of the warnings that are found in the book of Revelation, some of the warnings that are found and so we'll go through this and we'll see how far we can get as time permits but before we do that i would like to go ahead and open up with a word of prayer so if you would please bow with me our heavenly father we come before you we thank you for granting unto us another time to come together for the purpose of studying your word be with all the other teachers this evening that they too will be able to present with clarity and truthfully the things that they have prepared concerning your word we thank you for all that are here to listen and we pray that hearts and minds will be opened and be receptive to these things and that we will all gain a better understanding of them we ask you to watch over to be with those that are not here especially those of our number that are struggling with their health we pray that you will comfort and strengthen them that they may soon return to us we know there are others that are traveling and we too ask your blessings to be upon them grant them safety as they go to their destination and that they will be granted safety as they return and it's for these things that we ask and in christ's name amen so when we think about the book of revelation sometimes we tend to get so lost in the uh, symbolism and trying to figure out what everything means that we lose sight of the main purpose of the book and it is actually a book of reassurance we win and that is the main theme of the book of Revelation but before we 
get into any of that. When we look at chapters 2 and 3, and that's where when we come to Revelation, that's where we tend to spend most of our time, and then we stop at the end of chapter 3 because it starts to get a little more challenging uh, in some ways. But what we need to understand is that chapters 2 and 3 are the foundation for the rest of the book because everything in Revelation is written two and four, these seven churches in chapters two and three. And so it would make sense that the book would begin in that fashion. And so when we talk about the warnings that are found in the book, the first thing that I want us to consider is that there are warnings to repent. And we can see that when we come to chapter two and specifically uh, verses 4 and 5 in the statements to Ephesus. Now, there are many things that Ephesus is commended for, but there were also some things that were found lacking. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And you can go back, of course, to the book of Acts, and you can read of Paul's time in the city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 and part of chapter 20, when he speaks to the Ephesian elders, and you recall there, one of the things that he warned them about he told them that what? That's right. He uh, referred, to, referred to it in that fashion. He said, perverse men will arise from among yourselves. He referred to them as grievous wolves, not sparing the flock. Well, evidently, by this point, some of that had come to pass because one of the things they're commended for is that they had tried and tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. But even at that, we find here that they were deficient in some way. So we're told what their problem was. You have left your first love. Well, that would be the Lord. But he also tells them what they need to do to fix that. He tells them, one, to remember, remember what? From where you have fallen. From where had they fallen? They had fallen from the Lord. Secondly, he tells them to repent. That is a change of behavior, a change in course of action. Well, how can we see repentance? Well, he says, do the first works. Matthew 3 and verse 8 and Luke 3 and verse 8, in the preaching of John, what does John say about repentance? He says to bear the fruits of repentance. That is, it's something that is going to be evident. And so that is the solution. 
uh, we come down a little bit further into our text uh, to the letter to Pergamos, verses 14 and 15, uh, we find these words, but I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Then we come to verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is and nobody else does either. And any scholar that tells you they do, they're lying. But what I do know is something, it's something that the Lord hated and that's all that I need to know. That's all we need to know about that. But we do know more about Balaam. You can go back to the book of Numbers. There's a very lengthy section uh, dedicated to his actions beginning in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 1 going through chapter 24 and verse 25. Uh, Balaam is spoken of elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. Uh, let's turn a moment back uh, to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, and would someone like to volunteer to read for us verses 14 and 15? Correct. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and hearts that have exercised the covetous practice, turn and kill, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Absolutely. Uh, Jude in verse 11. I'm glad you mentioned that, Luther, because I had that in my notes here. So, <laughs> But yes, uh, Jude in his short but very uh, powerful letter, uh, he makes mention of that. And Second Peter and Jude, they both do the same thing. They're warning about and they're exposing these false teachers and these false prophets. And both of them invoke... Balaam, and we see here, 2 Peter 2, what was the problem with Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness? He caused his own brethren to stumble and to sin for his own personal benefit. So now can we understand why this would be a problem in the church of Pergamos, because there... You had a faction, not the whole church, keep that in mind, not the whole church, but you had a faction of that church that was doing the same thing that Balaam had done. Those things ought not be. There's a reason that we have these accounts in the scriptures and it is for us to learn from. But they too were given what they needed to do. Verse 16, 
repent. Simply repent. But he continues, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them. Well, who is the them? The ones who are holding to the doctrine of Balaam and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now I think about Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The word of God is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. So we have there so we already see two problems in two churches. One, the loss of zeal. Secondly, we see tolerance for false teachers and false doctrine. Now, I wish I could say it's going to get better. Let's come on down to verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2. And this is the letter to Thyatira. He goes on, beginning at verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now first, some context here. Uh, Jezebel, in this passage, of course, could not be speaking of the Jezebel that we read of in 1 Kings. So what is he referring to? He is referring to the fact that there was someone in this church, a woman who had the spirit and the mentality of Jezebel who was doing wicked works just as she had done in her time. Well, you go back and you study Jezebel. She was a very cunning, conniving woman. She wielded great influence, not only over her own household, but I would dare say the nation as well. So whoever this is, she had gained prominence and influence in the church and she was wielding that influence over certain ones. The, this makes me think of the concept and the subject of church discipline. A lot of churches won't practice it because they'll say that it's unkind. What did Jesus just say about this? My friends, we can't be more gracious than our Lord and Savior. Notice he says that he gave her time to repent and she did not. What do you do with something like that? And if the Lord is going to deal with it in this manner, 
how do you think we should address it if or when those situations arise in our congregations? Church discipline is a command. It is not an option. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, absolutely. That's usually the text that we'll go to and we should, but we can also see it right here and we can see the Lord himself practicing it. And so if he practices it, then what should that say for us? We need to practice it as well. All right. Um, I'll go ahead and pause here for a moment. Uh, do I have any questions or comments on anything that has been said up to this point? All right, well, we'll go on into chapter 3, and we'll look at the warning to repent of apathy. The warning to repent of apathy, and of course, we're going to be uh, talking about Sardis and Laodicea. Uh, we come to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. We find these words, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Well, what was their problem? Well, verse 1, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. They had a reputation, a good outward appearance, but on the inside, evidently, things weren't so good. So again, the Lord is giving them opportunity to repent and to change this. Well, the remedy would be the same as it was with Ephesus, to remember and return And we too need to examine ourselves individually. Have we lost our zeal? Are we lacking or deficient in some way? And if we are, the good news is we have the remedy to it right here. And we can change it if we are willing. But then we come... Uh, to verses 14 through 22, Laodicea, probably the more well-known text when it comes to the idea of apathy. And uh, again, I won't get into the, to the history, but historically, the city of Laodicea was a very materially uh, successful city. And so the things that the Lord says kind of parallel the culture of that time. Uh, so, for, so for example, uh, when he says that you are neither cold nor hot, well, the city of Laodicea was known for uh, their hot springs and their mineral baths. Now, if I'm going to step into a shower or a bath, I want my water to be a bit on the warmer side. Have you ever poured a cup of coffee and had to set it aside and then you 
come back after a little while, what happens? It's cold or lukewarm. And I can tell you, I have had the misfortune of getting some lukewarm coffee before, and I can tell you, I have spewed it out of my mouth. Now, but seriously, the, the language that Jesus uses here, uh, some, transla- uh, some translations, such as the King James, I believe, will render that spew. Others, such as the New King James, which I'm using, literally translates it vomit. Now, I know it's not a very pleasant sight or a very pleasant picture, but that's what he says he's going to do because of their apathy and their indifference. Well, what was their problem? They made the mistake that so many today still make in thinking and placing their security in their material goods. They had lost sight of that which is spiritual. They had lost sight of the Lord. And that was the problem with Laodicea. But again, he gives the remedy. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, what? Be zealous and repent. He's giving them that opportunity. So let us think about that. The answer for what to do is right here. In chapters 2 and 3, these seven churches, you can find most, if not all, the problems that exist still in so many churches today And in every one of them, you find the solution on what to do about it. And that is one of the many things that I love about Scripture. Scripture does not reveal a problem or a sin without providing a solution. We're not left hanging. All right. Uh, Then lastly on this point, and then we'll move on as time permits... The warnings to repent is there is a call to repent of rejection. Let's turn over into chapter 9. We'll go a little bit a little bit further in here. This is the uh, blowing of the trumpets followed by the um, seals. And here again, keep in mind, this is all symbolic. Language. This is in a series of prophetic visions that John receives, so we don't need to take it too literally. But there are still applications that we can make. Verses 20 and 21, here is what we find. We find the plagues that come after the trumpets. Notice what he says, "...but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues..." did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent 
of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Talks about idolatry. Murder, sorcery or witchcraft, fornication, adultery, and every other sexual sin that you can think of, and thefts. Now think about the wording here, that they did not repent. The whole purpose of all of these things was to bring about repentance. This is a picture of what Paul refers to as having a conscience seared with a hot iron. One that will not repent. And when one gets hardened to the point to where they will not repent, God will give them over to it, such as what we find in Romans 1, 24 and 25. And... Paul speaks of it again as well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And it's sad that so many have and so many will reject the message of the gospel. And here we see what happens. All right, do we have any of any uh, remarks or anything at all on any of this uh, material up to this point? Back when you were talking about the uh, church in Sardis, I, I thought it was interesting that they had a few there who had not soiled their garments. Mm-hmm. That is right. That's a, a very good point that Jim makes. Uh, and you go back and you read those texts, and he'll say things like that, that there are a few that have not, uh, like with Sardis there. So we know that even in the midst of that wickedness and that spiritual corruption, there were still faithful people. No matter what period of time you're in, there have always been faithful people of God, and there always will be. So that should be an encouragement to us. Thank you. Uh, do we have any, anything else on any of that? All right. Uh, secondly, we find in the book of Revelation, we find warnings against idolatrous worship. And I guess what we just read in chapter 9... Uh, is a good segue into that. Now we come, uh, we're going to come to chapter 13. And verses 13 through 15 is what we're going to look at. Now for context, um, context here, back in chapter 12, uh, you, have, you have this vision of one who's referred to as the dragon who is revealed to be Satan. Help us with our interpretation and our understanding when something 
in Scripture is explicitly stated, then we can know that that's what it is. So when the text says that the dragon is Satan, there's no ambiguity about that. And that is revealed. So when we come to chapter 13, we find uh, this vision of the beast coming out of the sea. John uh, looks like standing on the shoreline somewhere. And you read there and you read the description of this thing and you think, how in the world can there be any encouragement in this? This thing looks terrifying. Well, he is of Satan. And we find that this beast is subservient to the dragon. He is given, we're told, uh, power and great authority. And then we come uh, where we're going to begin, verse 11. John sees a second beast coming out of the sea. Two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Well, the dragon has already been identified as Satan. So if he speaks like a dragon, he's not going to have anything good to say. Notice in verse 12, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The second beast, we're going to find out, is who is identified as the false prophet. That is one, those who would try to, they would be these false teachers who would try to uh, they would deceive the people and even Christians, sadly, into believing that they could worship God and the emperor simultaneously as equals. The, and of course, the Romans, they were not the first to worship and treat their rulers as God. The Egyptians did it, and other cultures have done it. But the Romans were especially notorious for that, and there came a point in which the emperors, they demanded to be treated as gods. And that's why the persecution against the church was as strong and as violent as it was because the Christians who were faithful would not compromise their faith. They would not worship and treat a mere man as God. And so that helps us to kind of understand what we're reading here. But we're going to continue. Uh, verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth, watch this, to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. 
He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now in the abstract, and when we keep this purely in the realm of an intellectual exercise, I promise if a group of men armed with guns or whatever other types of weapons they had were to come into these doors right now and tell us to renounce our faith or be killed in the realm of theoretics every one of us would say we would tell them kill us but put yourself in the first century Roman Empire here you are a Christian you're serving God to the best of your ability maybe you have a family that you're trying to provide for and then you're told that if you do not do this you will not be able to earn a living you will not be able to buy the basic goods that you need to support yourself and your family and furthermore if you don't renounce your faith you will be killed that's exactly what they were facing but the good news is we know that there were many that did not compromise their faith for example back in chapter 2 he talks about Antipas whom he refers to as my faithful martyr one who actually did give up his life for the gospel the call here or what we see here is to warn the Christians in the first century to not be deceived by these things that were being done you can go back uh, parallel that if you will to Matthew chapter 24 and Jesus there talks to the disciples and he tells them that what? That many will come claiming to be Christ. And he says that some will even try to do these signs and wonders. He says, if possible, deceiving even the elect. And that's kind of the idea of what we see here. And so we need to be careful that we do not fall into that trap. Let us be vigilant. Let us make sure that we are not worshiping men as gods. And then to continue that, we come over to chapter 14 and verses 9 through 11. Uh, notice this. Then a third angel followed them with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, 
and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Who is the whoever? It could be anybody. The book of Revelation was written to Christians for Christians. And I think back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let him that think he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's not become so arrogant as to believe that we could not be guilty of any of these things. But the good news is, when we come to chapter 19, we see that judgment comes upon the perpetrators of this. Chapter 19 and verse 20. And here we find, the, find these words. Then the beast was captured. That's the beast that John saw in chapter 13. And with him the false prophet, the second beast of chapter 13, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. One thing that we can take comfort in is knowing that God will fairly and justly judge. We should not take pleasure in the fall of our enemies. But we should take comfort in knowing that God will deal with them fairly and accordingly. And so here when you come especially to these latter chapters of the book of Revelation, you can see the victory that is ours. And our time is almost up. So I didn't get through all of it, uh, but I will say this. If, give, if or when given the opportunity to speak before you again, I've got some more material, and we will look at, Lord willing, the blessings that are found in Revelation. Revelation is a beautiful book. It is a book of encouragement, but it is also a book of warning, and we should take heed accordingly. But I do appreciate your uh, kind attention, and we'll go ahead and uh, stand dismissed.